what is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Richard Manasseh, mechanical engineer and professor at Swinburne University of Technology. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, his journey towards being involved in cities, urban brains, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Professor Richard Manasseh is a mechanical engineer with specialist knowledge of fluid dynamics. At fundamental level, Richard's research focuses on wave modes and oscillators in fluids and their interactions. He is best known for his work on the vibrations of bubbles called bubble acoustics. His active projects examine ocean wave power machines, the interaction of ultrasound with microbubbles and live cells for medical diagnostics and therapeutics, and the interaction of ultrasound with droplets for food processing. Further applications of his research have included spacecraft engineering, coastal oceanography, thunderstorms, submarine noise, wastewater treatment, and microfluidic devices. Richard is a fellow of the Institution of Engineers Australia and a chartered professional engineer. He has served as both president and vice president of the Australian Fluid Mechanics Society. He became a full-time academic in 2010 after a career in industrial R&D and headed Swinburne's Department of Mechanical and Product Design Engineering for three years after a year as Mechanical Engineering Discipline Leader. And with that, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard, for accepting my invitation. I highly appreciate your time. First, what is fluid dynamics and why it is important? Right. Well, fluid dynamics is the study of fluid flows, something I've been working on for several decades. There's fluid flowing in your airways as you breathe, in your arteries and veins, and there's fluid flowing over the wing of an aeroplane as it goes to the sky. There's fluid flowing in the oceans and currents and waves. There's fluid flowing in the lava coming out of a volcano as it's erupting (laughs) and in a pharmaceuticals industry tank. As it's being stirred, there's fluid flows everywhere around us in nature and in engineering. So fluid dynamics is the study of the forces and of the movements of fluids for all those applications. How did you start becoming a fluid dynamics, a fluid dynamics engineer? Fluid dynamicist, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. It doesn't roll off the tongue very easily, does it? So I started off studying engineering. And in fact, I originally wanted to be a civil engineer. Then I discovered that civil engineering was about stuff that sits there and doesn't move. And I thought, hmm, mechanical is more interesting because it involves movement. And the most interesting movement of all, I think, is the movement of fluids. Mm-hmm. And I also like pictures and I like patterns. And there's the most beautiful patterns in nature, I think, are created by fluid flows. Those lovely swirly patterns that you've seen in, in, in the sky when there's clouds and so on. You think of that. I know there's a Van Gogh painting called um, Starry Night, which mm-hmm. um, shows a phenomenon that we know about that can occur in the atmosphere as well as, as in very many systems. And, you know, that's an example of one of the beautiful patterns created by fluids as they move around. So that's what attracted me to it. There's also some very interesting mathematics involved in it. And as I mentioned, it's got a huge range of practical applications. That sounds so fascinating. And how did you become interested or connected with cities? Okay, that's a really good question. I'm not really sure. (laughs) Swinburne's Smart Cities Research Institute 
director, Mark Burry, asked me uh, to become a program leader in the the new institute. And I sort of asked myself that question, what have I got to do with this? Because I'm not an architect or an urban planner, or I don't know anything about this. I have no credibility or knowledge of this area, apart from having lived in a few cities. But I think they were looking at what I'd done in the past. And I've, I had a sort of history of bringing together teams from across different disciplines. What seemed to me at the time to be different disciplines, we created a team to create a human-suitable targeted ultrasound contrast agent, which are little bubbles injected into people to try and diagnose disease in ultrasound. Mm -hmm. That involved mechanical engineers, mathematicians, physicists, working with protein chemists and biologists. And that's an example of a multidisciplinary team. We've done another multidisciplinary collaboration between uh, chemists and biologists and marketing people and, and engineers again to solve problems for the dairy industry. Mm-hmm. And right now we're working on a problem in oceanography and we're collaborating with the musician. So I like that sort of thing. And I suppose that they knew that I like that. So um, they said, why did you try working with architects for a change? <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> I don't know anything about this, but mm-hmm. that's the point. I find it really interesting to, and it's really opened my eyes as to what architects do and how amazing they are with mm-hmm. manipulation of space. And I think maybe that's part of it because I said I love these patterns and fluid flows. That's what architects do as well. They're architects are masters of manipulating space, aren't they? Mm. You're an architect. You should know. That's <laughs> I what should. That's what you do. You manipulate space by mm-hmm. creating boundaries here and there, but also understanding how people move through space and flow through space, which is what you know fluids do as well. They flow through obstacles and around corners and all that. So uh, perhaps that's... That's something I've come to appreciate, really. But more specifically, I think they wanted me to bring together people from the engineering research community and people from the um, human-centered design community. That's mm-hmm. architecture is a human-centered kind of design. Often, I, th- I think um, the word designer is um, hijacked by the human-centered design community as if um, the only designs are the ones that uh, we can see as humans and appreciate, like the beautiful buildings that architects can design. But of course, engineers are taught engineering design. The design of technologies is what engineering is about. So a lot of those designs may not be apparent to the general public. They may be hidden inside a machine or hidden inside an electronic circuit or forever buried in concrete. (laughs) It's a civil engineer's design, but they're designs nevertheless. And the creativity in the design process is the same irrespective of the profession. So to bring together engineering design experts, as well as the human-centered design experts and people from the sciences to, to work on urban problems. That was my, my brief. <laughs> Still is my brief. And it's uh, pretty challenging, but the only way to really get it to happen is to get people in the room together and get them all talking about what they find interesting. And, you know, automatically you find that collaborations emerge and and connections emerge and people start working with people across the disciplines. And I find that really interesting how that can gel. Is this multidisciplinarity usual with fluid dynamics? Good question. Fluid dynamicists, of course, have collaborated historically with almost every discipline you can imagine. But it is hard and it is hard to go across very many areas. For example, we've got a project at the moment where we're stretching into marine biology. Understanding those details to the extent that you can communicate with 
someone in that area, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. It takes years to get up to speed. When we were working in the dairy industry, it took you know years to, mm-hmm. to understand all the fine details of how they process milk. <laughs> I know more about processing milk than the average person, I'm sure. <laughs> um, because of that, you, know, you need to learn these details in order to communicate in a meaningful way with people mm-hmm. from another discipline. And in fluid dynamics, although you find fluid dynamicists have collaborated and do collaborate, they don't collaborate across very many different areas. So they will specialize in working with, for example, vascular surgeons if they mm-hmm. are fluid dynamicists who work on blood flow mm-hmm. or on the design, for example, of stents, which are um, devices that go in arteries that keep arteries open when people have um, isochemic disease and so on. So they will learn all the details of, you know, the, the lining of the blood vessels and how they work and where they can go wrong, for example. And the fluid dynamicists who work on ventilation of indoor spaces, a topic mm-hmm. that's very prominent in the last uh, 18 months or so, they will be working with architects, but also they'll be working with the sorts of specialists in respiratory medicine and and so on to understand those those details. And that can take years and years to understand as well. We've got fluid dynamicists who who become oceanographers. And so Mm -hmm. they will know all the details of the ocean and ocean currents and very specific aspects of ocean currents. Fluid dynamicists who work on flowing lava, so they'll know about volcanoes and how volcanoes erupt and all that sort of stuff. You know, that'll be a very different world to the the world of the people working with medical experts, for example. So I guess the very long answer to your question is, yes, it is normal for fluid dynamicists to, but usually with just one Mm -hmm. alien... discipline if you see not not a lot of alien disciplines but then you are a special one because you have been working with so many different disciplines right i guess so um so jack of all trades with the corollary meaning master of none so i don't really know anything <laughs> about anything just <laughs> i know people who know really know the details i think that's mm-hmm. the best way of describing it but it is interesting and i enjoy finding out about all these new areas and uh, mm-hmm. continue to do so space is the next one so then fluid dynamics and space where Swinburne's getting into space, so we're all learning about space stuff. And I did do space stuff early in my career, so it's not entirely alien. Good choice of words. Do you differentiate between multidisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity? That's a very interesting question. I didn't used to, but our director, Mark Burry, taught me what that term means. Transdisciplinary is where you must have different disciplines working together to solve a practical problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a project and the project demands that you get an engineer and a physicist and a human-centered designer, that you must have an architect and a chemist or or something like that. That's transdisciplinary. Multidisciplinary is being talked about a lot and we, we do it a lot, but it's often where someone will lead and they will realize, ha, I'm a medical person and I need an engineer or I'm a a physicist and I I need a biologist, or the other way around. So one discipline will often lead, uh, but transdisciplinarity is where you you must have those disciplines, otherwise the problem can't be solved. And your projects, I imagine, are more transdisciplinary than multidisciplinary. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. I would like to think so. Uh, And Mm -hmm. you've asked a good question. I, I haven't really put much thought to whether the things I've done in the past are transdisciplinary or, or multidisciplinary. But I think that is probably correct. And it may also be that we've sought the sorts of problems that others haven't 
worked in already because there's so much happening in science. It's such a crowded universe of different projects and different topics people work on. And so you need to find something that's new and where you can make your mark. And often the only way to do that is to reach out and to find someone that you know together you can solve the problem with. Yeah, I guess come to do that almost automatically. They are difficult to do because you've got to understand enough about the other discipline in order to know what really matters to them. Too often you find that you need a pet from the other discipline, not a collaborator. <laughs> that's a term oh. that's sometimes used. Oh, we need a pet biologist. Oh, we need a pet engineer. In other words, someone who can do the stuff, you know, like someone who can fix a leaky tap in your house. But that's not really, that's sometimes done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not really transdisciplinary. You mentioned it's challenging to work in such groups. Is this the biggest challenge that sometimes the collaboration isn't looked at as transdisciplinary, but you came in as you can do the calculations, just do the calculations, we will take care of the others. What is the biggest challenge when you are working with collaborators? That is a very good question. And the biggest challenge is publication. If you're in an academic environment, we have to publish. That's not changed since just after the Second World War. I suppose someone coined the phrase publish or perish. You've, you've really got to publish. And mm. if you're doing work that's either multidisciplinary or genuinely transdisciplinary, there's an issue. You write a paper with your collaborators. You really understand at last what they do and they understand what you do and it's great. You try and publish it. Mm -hmm. Are you going to publish it? Publish in a journal in your field. It'll go out to the editor. The editor will look at that and, oh, what's this? turn it upside down and back, back to front. And I don't really understand this. It doesn't look like research in my area. It's got a bit of it, but, you know, and so you send it off to the other area and the same thing happens. Mm -hmm. No high quality journal wants to claim it as their own. And inevitably there are issues where uh, things aren't done as thoroughly as you would like them done if it were mm -hmm. just a pure research project in your own discipline. That's where the problem arises. It's getting it published. Often these projects are incredibly good fun <laughs> to do, but getting them published in good quality journals is difficult. That's, that's the biggest challenge. Does this mean that the publishing challenge is kind of obstructing innovation? Very good question. I'm not sure if it's directly obstructing innovation, mm -hmm. but people who are successful in research know very well how mm -hmm. competitive it is. And every minute of their time that they spend doing something that they are not confident will lead to a high quality, highly cited publication is wasted time potentially. So they will shy away or move away from problems which need to be solved, transdisciplinary problems which need to be attacked and addressed, or they will say, no, not me, even though they may well be the best person, the top person could really solve that problem. They may not want to get involved for that reason. So I think you're right. I think mm -hmm. there is an issue because very successful researchers will realize that sticking to the core of their discipline where they will get the, the greatest benefit. There are occasionally breakthroughs where I don't mean technical breakthroughs so much as breakthroughs into the true transdisciplinarity where mm -hmm. someone will do some high quality, highly technical work in their own area, and they will realize through conversation with someone that it has an application in another area. And then if they write it properly, they can get it published 
version of it published, development of it published in a totally different area. That's that's the sort of breakthrough that occasionally happens. It's a little bit sad that this kind of collaboration is not encouraged by this publishing world. Because as I see, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, we have so many challenges and problems which would require at least multidisciplinary, if not transdisciplinary approaches, that if the good people with very intelligent minds are not encouraged to think about them and try to solve those, then we have huge, huge problems. There always have been. So it's not new. What is changing, though, is impact metrics are becoming talked about, at least in Mm -hmm. the academic world and in Australia. And I know the UK has, has put those into place. So if a transdisciplinary project does something good for society, has an achievement that can somehow be measured and how to measure it is a huge problem in its own right, then there's the potential for that to be recognised. But it's still not up there. It's still not quantified. There's no index. We all have these Google Scholar indices hanging over our heads measuring how we perform and collective groups have these indices and these numbers and our universities have these numbers with which we are ranked. And that is the law. Mm -hmm. It's not a law in any given country. It's, It's an international law. The impact which can genuinely arise, as you say, quite rightly, from a transdisciplinary project, it's not, it's not measurable right now. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to measure it. And before I forget, congratulations on the new book. Highly, highly appreciated that you put out this new book called Fluid Waves. Yes, it's a book. It's a textbook, which I wanted to write for a long time. I sort of just kind of fell into writing it, I suppose. I've sort of been writing notes for many years and I thought, well, maybe I should put these notes together. And it's actually half of a textbook. The other half is a sort of set of research papers, effectively reviews, which I've written on on various topics. So the idea is to have something which is hopefully useful for students and practitioners so that they can just get the formula they need for Mm -hmm. a particular problem as well as the explanation behind it. So you've got the start of each chapter, there's just a list of formulae and then a link to where the formulae come from so that you can dig into it if you want to. And then the second part is um, what I hope if they ever want me to do another edition, we'll keep evolving and Mm -hmm. that will be contemporary topics, contemporary applications. I mentioned briefly, um, you know, blood flow and so on and the ultrasound. And so there's a chapter, bits of two chapters, which refer to the medical applications of mm-hmm. um, ultrasound contrast agents and blood mm-hmm. flow and so on, as well as oceanographic issues and um, issues to do with waves in the ocean, which is another big interest of mine. So you've got those applications towards towards the end. And maybe something of the multidisciplinarity has gone into that, maybe not transdisciplinary, but at least multidisciplinarity in that the perspective from which one looks at the second half of the book is multiple perspectives. There's an oceanographer's perspective. There's, a, I guess, a, a medical scientist's perspective. All of those, which I've, I've kind of absorbed as, as far as I could from those I've been working with. Um, there's even a bit on volcanoes and the sounds of erupting volcanoes because I um, got to know someone who is a researcher in that area. Wow, that's so cool. Very hot. I guess so. So let's go to the usual questions. What does the future of cities mean to you? Okay, so I would like to think it's an optimistic future. I'm not a a philosopher or an expert, as I said 
at the start, but there's often a sort of notion that, you know, we all, our ancestors started off in little villages or whatever as nomads even. And uh, the city is something nasty and artificial that we're forced to live in. But I, I do not think that is necessary or, or an appropriate way to think about cities. I think they are in many ways a much more efficient way to sustain the sort of population that we now have with the 7 billion plus people on Earth. And they can be a very wonderful way to engender innovation. We've been talking about people from different backgrounds working together. It is easier if you are in physical proximity. Yes, we can be on the other side of the world and, and so on, but you can't, you still can't go and, you know, sit in a bar and have a coffee or whatever. And, and so much more happens when that possibility is there, if you can be in proximity with other people. And, and that's what I love doing. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not unique in that regard. So the cities do offer that possibility for us to innovate and to move forward as a species, I suppose, that living in isolated areas, as our remote ancestors did, in isolated groups, that that isn't there. So I think the future of cities should be positive as long as we recognise that there is an issue in urban design and we recognise what these issues are. Such as? You asked about problems. Yeah, we can jump into the second question. What are your biggest fears and concerns regarding okay. the future of cities? So, well, fears and concerns about cities. There was a, a very nice session put together by Mark Burry, the director of Swinburne Smart Cities Research Institute, called Cities as Complex Systems. And in that, the other panel members and I sort of came up with this notion that the city was almost like a living thing like a living organism. And, you know, maybe if we start to think about it that way, I'm no expert in biology, but, you know, maybe we start to think about it that way, we can start to see where issues are. Mm -hmm. So you've got cities growing. That's good, but it could be bad. They could be growing uncontrollably. And with the sort of analogy of a tumour or something like that, eating up the countryside and then you have uh, necrosis, as the, as the medical people call it, where tissue dies because there's been a cancer growing and the cells just die and you've got all kinds of other issues associated with that. And you've got the well-known human, awful human issues that can occur where you've got cities that have died because they've sprawled out social issues have got out of control. I remember a colleague who, who is an American who had went to a conference in Detroit, had never been to Detroit before. And he said, you know, just going through the center of town was like flying through a zombie movie. I've <laughs> seen in a zombie movie, oh. just you know, desolation, destruction. So mm-hmm. you don't want that, you know, that uncontrolled growth. So I think that that's something to be concerned about. If we continue that living organism concept, you've got the challenges and threats that any living organism faces, and those are external environmental threats Mm -hmm. that the organism itself can adapt to if it's able, but they're still threats. And so clearly we've got threats to do with climate change that are affecting cities and how we respond to those, how the city responds to it is is very, very critical. And Mm -hmm. it's not clear at all that's going to be done properly. So you've got those, those big issues to do with external threats. You've got the internal issue of things getting out of control. And I think the biggest problem really is we, we consider it a living thing is that it may grow and not have a brain, right? So things that have a brain 
they can sense their environment, they can see what's happening, they can even understand what's happening within themselves, and they can adjust, take control. So, you know, you've got cities without brains. And again, I'm no expert on this, but the first thing that pops into my mind is something like a chaotic refugee camp. Some of those are populations of sizable cities in their own right, yet they're cities no one wants to exist. No one wants those cities to exist, yet, yet they do. That's a fairly extreme example, something that has arisen because of other circumstances. You know, it, there's no one's planned it, or maybe someone has laid it out, but it's never meant to be that big. It's never meant to be permanent or even semi-permanent. But you've also got other cities that lost their brain, and maybe with their brain, they've lost their heart as well. So that's not good. So those, those are real concerns that, that we might have going forward. Has this optimistic view for the future of cities changed due to COVID? A very good question, and I don't know the answer really. We can just speculate. Don't forget, we're still in the middle of it. Yes. <laughs> it's not over yet, as they say. So I'm not sure. Clearly, transmission risk is higher when there are many other people around moving randomly. So you will have that concern. But there's been disease in cities as long as there have been cities. And the diseases have gone and the cities are still there. And societies are still there. And, you know, if we think back to the last pandemic, which is before any of us was born, well, okay, they'd emerged from the First World War, particularly in Europe. Once it had faded off that influenza pandemic, the cities came back to what they were before. Changed, no doubt, but not necessarily changed by the pandemic, just changed by other developments that were occurring in society. So I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't say the optimistic view has been changed at all by the pandemic. Maybe I'm wrong. And as I said, we, we shouldn't hasten to make a judgment because we're still in that sort of circumstance. Mm -hmm. How this optimistic view comes together with the knowledge that we don't have the solutions just yet for the challenges you were talking about? Just to clarify, because for me, it's, not terrifying, but I wouldn't say that I am very relaxed with this knowledge. <laughs> so how can this optimistic view fit together with this knowledge? I think we, you know, it could be something as simple as simply recognizing that cities are entities in their own right that need a brain. And You know, I, I don't like talking too vaguely because I am an engineer after all. We need something a bit more specific and precise. What do we mean by brain? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we recognize that and we start to give cities brains, then I'm sure problems will fix themselves organically and automatically. Mm. So what do we mean by a brain? Well, one of the things we've been working on is sensing. So first of all, getting the data. And that, that's a fairly conventional sort of notion that there is some government or authority which collect information fine. But what sort of information? Well, things that you might not think of are, are being worked on right now. So they're giving trees sensors, for example. Trees are an example of technology. We don't think of them as such, but they provide what are called ecosystem services. That's a term I've learned. By that, I mean, of course, they provide shade on a hot day. That's something everyone, I think, knows very well. But they also provide drainage services. And we don't necessarily realize that because the roots of the tree will draw water up from the soil and they will evaporate that into the air so that when there's enough, uh, too much rain rather, the, uh, the trees take on some of the job of the stormwater drainage system. They make the soil less waterlogged than it otherwise would be, put less load in the stormwater drainage system, transpire that moisture back into the atmosphere. 
And so people are and cities are costing trees. They're saying if you want to chop down trees for your development, fine, okay. This is what the tree is providing in terms of an urban service in dollars every year. You give us these dollars and you can chop down the tree. Suddenly developers change their mind. They see there's a cost to it. They may not like it, but they see that there's a cost to it and um, they maintain the tree. It's not just for aesthetic purposes. It has a, it has a function. Mm-hmm. So we're putting sensors on trees as part of giving the city a brain. So putting sensors on trees that measure the stress level of the tree, how much the tree needs to be watered, all kinds of interesting things can be done, which go into the depth of the biology of the tree and of the botany and also of the physics of how the tree draws the water up from the soil. Do you know that inside a tree, you've got this thing called xylem, which is a little channel with which the tree draws up water from deep in its roots all the way up to the leaves by capillary action, by surface tension. And if the tree is under stress, heat stress, that this column of fluid breaks. And the fluid dynamics phenomenon called cavitation, which means basically that water or fluid is turned into vapor. Something that you see when water is boiled in a kettle, that's when you heat something up and you change water into water vapor. Well, you drop the pressure or you put too much a pressure difference on a column of water or a column of fluid, the same thing will happen. You'll get a bubble forming. And that means that that part of the tree, that little fraction of the tree is no longer able to supply to its leaves and that part may die. And when that cavitation bubble forms, it creates a sound, which we can measure. This is one example of instrumentation I'd be very keen to get into trees. They are doing much simpler things as well. There there are other ways that that horticulturists know how to measure. But all that, put it on the tree, you power it with solar or whatever, and you telemeter the signals via wireless to some central command center. And of course, it's not just trees, it's rubbish bins. People want to put sensors in rubbish bins so we know when to empty them. All that sort of information, that's data. And the data together with the big data scientists can give us so much more information about how this organism is functioning, how it's developing. There's so much data we just don't use. For example, my key data, which uh, in Melbourne is, is the smart card system that is used for transport. Yeah. All that information contains, it's a goldmine, really. We don't have to look at individuals, just look at patterns of how people move around. All of that could be used to make the city smarter in an operational sense. So that's this kind of central brain concept, but there's also a distributed brain concept because there's some creatures which don't have a fixed brain, they've got brain cells everywhere and equivalent of that sort of sensing is, is more distributed. And I think One concept I've learned in this whole exercise of working with urban governance experts is if you can give individual people a kind of consciousness that they are part of a city, then all sorts of interesting things could happen. So you could ask the person walking down the street, you know, with the app on your phone, what do you think of this um, development? Should it go ahead? Yes or no? No, it's not that you have to act on it, but you could get all kinds of useful information that way. What do people really think? buildings that they walk past. Rank them. Do you like this building? One, two, three. Maybe as an architect, you don't want to, <laughs> you may not want to hear that, but uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to have a go at you just because you're an architect. But one thing that um, I do notice is that architects put all their passion into the building before it's built. Yes, we do. <laughs> don't you? Once it's built, project's over, <laughs> move on to the next one. You know, but it's after it's built that it matters. Oh, yes, I completely agree. It's very interesting because I am also learning as an architect that 
in so many different disciplines, the constant feedback and the iteration of the design, the product, the code, it's so important and so useful for the final result that it's just hilarious that, as I see, architects just sit down with the client once, twice, for a month, I don't know, then they produce the design, then someone builds it, and then it just stays there. And there is no constant feedback. I don't feel that you are picking on me. I completely understand. Yeah, well, uh, you, the constructive you, 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 weren't, my... you weren't the architect of design buildings that I would complain about, you see. so And, and certainly, what you're, you're absolutely right that there's all that training on the design process, and quite rightly so, but no feedback from the people who actually have yes. to live in it and use it, or even people who walk past it. Mm. Could we give the city a brain by giving individuals um, an opinion, at least, on what they like and why they like what they like? There's this constant vein that I'm sure annoys architects along the lines of, oh, modern buildings are ugly. Now, some modern buildings are astonishingly beautiful. That is true. When you walk past a lot of modern buildings at street level, cost is a factor. They are constructed with fairly large plain surfaces, which are boring. Sheets of glass, slabs of concrete. You walk past slabs of concrete. Even a brick wall is interesting because the bricks are about the size of human head, okay? And some old buildings, they even have different bricks, different colored bricks or whatever, you know? So there's texture, there's mm-hmm. texture and there's detail that humans can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's trivial and should be dismissed, dismissed either mm-hmm. because people walk or move or live in an environment which looks interesting. They feel happy. You know, happy that I look out the window and I, I can see trees. Now, I'm not sure why, but I don't think it's an unusual sensation or sentiment that when we see something that is visually pleasing, we live in an environment visually pleasing, we feel happy, and that must have a positive consequence. And if you aggregate those positive consequences statistically, you will have a happier population, a happier and more functional city. Mm-hmm. So having designs at street level that people can rank and rate, say, I don't like this wall, why not? It's just blank concrete. Well, maybe that will lead in, lead to some sort of design principles that there should be texture and texture on a scale of a human hand or a human face that people can relate to. I don't know if that's what's needed or not, but if enough people are surveyed in this way and constantly surveyed and they get the feeling that their input is being taken into consideration, then the city will have a brain in another way. So technological and human brain. Is there any more kind of brain? Because I understand there are different understandings of this brain. There is the technological version and there is the human version. And I love that you (laughs) didn't stop (laughs) at the technological part. Do you have any more brains for the city? More brains? How many do you want? No, no, I'm asking. Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The old-fashioned central brain certainly has a role. And we, we do see that operating to some extent via our governments and, and agencies. The human brain hasn't been implemented, really, taking mm-hmm. consistently taking people's opinions into account. Of course, there are surveys and there's consultation processes, but that's something that, you know, you, you get the impression governments and developers feel that they have to do and they don't want to do it because real people have inconvenient opinions <laughs> about things. I think if we just got to the point where we could somehow integrate what you've called the human brain, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, that sort of aggregated brain of the city, if we could somehow integrate that in a systematic way, 
into decision-making, then that would be great. So maybe that's the third brain, the one that links the sort of more amorphous opinions of people Mm -hmm. with the more uh, rigorous, constantly monitored data. I think that would be great. It's very interesting because someone talks about data. They don't really differentiate between data from people and data about people. But in your description, both were present because, for example, the Mikey cards is just data about people without any knowledge or background information why they are moving in that direction, what is that they are seeking in this transport, for example. But when you were talking about why they are evaluating that particular building, one, two, three, doesn't really matter, then we get the data from people understanding their behavior. And then it could lead us for bigger and better insights, which could then influence our decision-making. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm aware, as I suppose all of us are. I think if you've really hit the nail on the head in codifying it that way, I think that's very nice description that you've got the data from people and the Mm -hmm. data about people. So the data from people, if it were collected continuously Mm -hmm. and if there's enough of it, so that is statistically significant and we do it properly, so it's not just a focus group that we do as a once-off, it's constantly collected, then it has real force. It's not a once-off survey. We constantly collect information about what people think about buildings, what people think about streets, about the layout. That will have a power that I do not think that property developers need be afraid of because if anything, I get the impression that the property developers don't like the loud voices who are inevitably individuals who complain loudly, often mm-hmm. with a vested interest about something, and that's their right and they should complain and will continue to complain, of course, and they point out things that others may not realise, which is good, but you still get the impression that's not everyone. What does everyone think? Does everyone care? So getting broader opinions, I think that has immense value if it's used carefully and used wisely. And it's very interesting because you are also describing somehow the emergent brain from the whole city. From swarm intelligence, there is the action when Each individual, each agent in the swarm has some kind of action and some kind of intelligence. And then from the whole swarm, there will be an emergent brain, which is much more than each individual's intelligence separately. And that would be the third brain for the city, as I understood. Maybe. And maybe you've invented it. That sounds great, Fanny. Mm -hmm. That's a really um, nice way of describing it. And we see this kind of emergent behavior. You've used the term swarm. That's really kind of crystallized it for me. We see this emergent behavior in uh, many creatures. Fluid dynamicists have studied, in addition, fish, for example. So it's very interesting how some species of fish swim and they create vortices as they flap their whole bodies. And these vortices travel through the water, creating pressure fields, which can be sensed by other fish. So you've probably seen these nature documentaries where there's a school of fish and they form a ball and they can split and divide. And I've actually been swimming in the sea and there's been these little fish just in front of me and I've just tried to grab one, but they all move automatically Mm -hmm. so efficiently to Mm -hmm. to form a new cloud or whatever because of what you described there's this emergent property Mm -hmm. and this emergent property is because of the physics but it's also created this effective mass intelligence with which they respond and your flocks of birds do the same thing as well i think starlings are most famous for that have you heard the term 
iatrogenics. It's used in the medical field when you are healthy, but to make you more healthy, you get some supplements. And we don't yet know whether those supplements are causing any good or causing bad for you. This is iatrogenics when action is not necessary and it may cause bad, but we do it anyway because we think it causes good. Have you came across such an action in your career? For example, you mentioned the sensors with the trees. What happens when a tree sends the signal that it is under stress? Does someone go there and do something which we don't know whether it's good or bad? Does this happen? Right. So what I guess you're referring to there is, is there a model for how to react to the the sensor data we would like to Mm -hmm. collect? If in the tree example, the tree reports water stress, then for that particular species of tree, as well as other information, how much shade and so forth, you would imagine that there would be some automatic watering action and that this action would be appropriate. So you'd imagine there'd be an appropriate action to water the tree, but in other circumstances, we may not know what actions to take. So we may have so much data and we may not know what to do with it. One area that is, again, very interesting is airflow around buildings, particularly in higher density urban areas. What does the wind do if we build what are called urban canyons? The wind in a windy place like Melbourne, for example, can get funneled through these urban canyons, creating a wind tunnel effect. And I've worked in on wind tunnels, so a wind tunnel effect is really unpleasant. Can it be avoided What are the circumstances that lead to it? We need proper studies of the overall meteorological data. We need models to be run. Yes, wind tunnel tests have been done on model cities and buildings for many years. But to understand really what a new development might do or how that might relate to the comfort of people on the street, that's much more work that needs to be done. So if we do sense, for example, that there's too much heat stress in one part of a street, there's too much sunlight, and we don't have the option for shading it. Is there a way to manipulate local wind fields to cool the building a bit more, for example? Those sorts of decisions based on data that could be collected without too much trouble, they require models we haven't got mm-hmm. yet. So you've asked a, a very good question. How do we fix problem identified by the data. Is it indeed a problem at mm-hmm. all? That's right. That's the sort of intelligence that doesn't necessarily emerge automatically in an organic way because you've got many, you could by trial and error, change this or ch- change that. You could change the water flow here or there, but it might be very difficult. But I don't want to sound too negative in response to your question either. There are cases where I think we could have a sort of natural or, or organic and very sensible strategy. And that's where we're dealing with water in the city. So Australian cities, mostly uh, still single-storey buildings or just a few storeys where you've got a lot of roof per human. I think probably Australia, you've got more roof per human than anywhere else. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe not. I don't know. But there certainly is a lot of roof per human. So there's a lot of rainwater per human being collected as it falls on these roofs. And about 20 years or so ago in, in this country, there was a terrible drought in southeastern Australia and people started to realise that it was a good idea to collect rainwater. So now in the local hardware stores, you can buy huge plastic tanks to store your rainwater if you want to and then use it in your garden. That's nice. But what if you've got too much water and you're not in a position to use it? Or what if we start creating grey water? 
systems where, you know, the water coming out of your clothes washing machine, of course, you don't want to drink that. But on the other hand, it's not toxic, really. Could you use that for some other purpose? Can we create networks of these things so that I've got too much rainwater, my neighbor needs it, I can sell it to my neighbor, right? So I can, if I have solar on my roof, I can sell electricity to the grid and then the grid sells it to someone else. Well, that's easy because, well, it has its issues as well, but at least electrical engineers understand how to do those calculations, even if it's difficult to put in practice. But with water, Ooh, can we do it with water? Can I sell my excess water to my neighbor? Can I buy rainwater from my neighbor to use to water my garden? Can we have a market? What are the systems which would enable that to be possible? You probably don't want your central brain controlling that. You may want that to grow organically so that you provide people with fittings and the, the simple computer peripherals or, or hardware valves and so on that would allow them to sell water to their neighbours and create a local market, maybe just two or three houses, mm -hmm. and that could grow. So that's the sort of thing you could do that could make the city smarter, which doesn't require that central planning and control, whereas things to do with uh, manipulating the airflow within an urban canyon, that is a tougher call, I think. You mentioned the urban heat effect. It's always interesting that we can measure urban heat islands with sensors and see how high the temperature is. However, if we just would ask people, they would tell us that, yes, it's hot. You should do something. I'm not suggesting that each sensing opportunity could be supplemented with human feedback. For example, in the case of trees, Obviously, that's really good that the trees have sensors and then they can send a signal that they have some troubles. But why do we need data from sensors when we could ask people for the same information? Yes, very good question indeed. And sort of my engineering background tells me, well, don't rely on people. <laughs> don't rely on people. They're not reliable. You can't do that. But you're right. It's, we don't really, in a context of comfort, care what the temperature is. We care whether we're comfortable or not. So you're absolutely spot on. We need to ask people how they feel. But how do we do that? People are constantly tweeting this, that, and the other, or posting this, that, and the other on social media. And I've tried to do that myself, getting into it. But it's work for me. You know, how do we ask people how they feel constantly? Are there other things that can be done. So I've got this uh, recently been given to me. I emphasized it by myself, one of these smart watch things that monitors all sorts of things about me, personal data, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I don't mind. I find it quite, because I'm a data junkie, I find it interesting. <laughs> But, you know, possibly if there are systems like that, that people are using for some other purpose, can we adapt them such that they do telemeter information about a person's subjective experience to some central control system. And, you know, statistics on people is notoriously difficult, but when your numbers are big enough, there's a, something called the central limit theorem in statistics, which tells you that you start to be able to describe things with what's called a normal distribution or a bell-shaped curve. So you could do it if there's enough people around with smartwatches and they have elected to have an app which then sends a signal saying this person's comfortable or not, then I think that could be very powerful and very useful. So why, you're right, why institute measures to thermally insulate, improve people's comfort if they're already comfortable or uncomfortable? Now, you've asked me a very good question in that sense that yesterday I was in the office. It was 30 degrees uh, or so outside. I wore a t-shirt to the office. I'm sitting in the office and I'm freezing. So I opened the door, my office, 
And I opened the window of my office to, and it's quite pleasant, you know. You would have thought that a more advanced system would know that I was too cold and just, but I can't control it. I can't control the air conditioning in my office. That's an example. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. If we can have systems that do that, it might be here. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, whether we should aim in our designs, in our planning for the majority, or we should give the flexibility for the people who are wise enough to know what is best for them. So creating a flexible system which can accommodate the user's needs as they see fit. Yeah, I think it should be possible. And we're talking about a branch of engineering called control. Control engineering is a well-established branch of engineering. And control engineers are remarkably flexible individuals because they are able to deal with all kinds of different signals. It doesn't have to be a feedback signal from Mm -hmm. an instrument can be something that is related to something that can be looked up, still automatically looked up at a table. All sorts of things are possible. Control doesn't have to be continuous either. It can be on off. It can go through steps and stages. So certainly if you've got some of your feedback data coming from people's opinions, albeit you know, on a scale of one to five, this person is too hot or too cold, and that isn't consistent, like not everyone in the building has one of these watches on there. I would like to have a little app on this watch which says, are you too hot or too cold? Yes, no. I could just do that and it would send a signal. Such signals would be aggregated somehow or maybe just an app on my phone, but they would use that together with what is traditionally called hard data and that hard data might be more broadly available. You come up with a strategy that suits the circumstance. So control is very important and dealing with complex data, which is of different characteristics, is also something that can be done. And we talked about urban brains, and you also mentioned heart. What is the city's heart? Good question. And I was thinking about that really in a sort of, you know, philosophical sense of what heart is. I suppose being a fluid anamnesis, I should have been saying what causing the fluid to flow through the, the arteries <laughs> and veins. But actually, I was thinking of soul or the city in a sense. And that is also related to its brain, but it is also related to the collective feeling of uh, happiness and satisfaction that people have that we talked about. Mm -hmm. So people feel happy, feel satisfied. What is doing that? Is it something that it's unexpected that, you know, you walk along the street, actually went to town uh, the week and, you know, walking on the street at night and there's, you know, music performance that we weren't expecting, little alleyway, something like that. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you you feel interested, you feel enlivened. Okay. All of that is, you know, there's evidence of heart there. I think that's probably what we want. And I think the city of Melbourne in particular, and um, there are other cities around the world which do the same thing, are perfectly aware of this, that there is this Mm -hmm. intangible aspect and that's something that you can't engineer, but you can provide the circumstances, you can provide the systems that allow those circumstances to, those situations to arise. So they will have, obviously won't be truly random that people just started playing music in the street. There'll be a permit, someone will have applied for it, but the systems we set up that it's not an exceptional thing, that they can do it and that can happen. So that is part of urban governance as well. And we do need that and we do need people accepting of that as well so that Mm -hmm. there aren't layers and layers of bureaucracy there. But on the other hand, that we don't do things which are, you know, really not not a good idea. We've been talking a lot 
about urban farming, which is a very exciting concept and a great idea that, you know, you would have people growing vegetables in and selling the plots of land, which is kind of boring, barren nature strips even. All right, well, let's grow vegetables on them if people want to. Can we have a market in that? Like I said, we could have a market in water. Well, we could, but you need to be careful. Food safety is something we don't think about very much in society we live in, but people used to die of all sorts of nasty <laughs> diseases that they catch from food that's improperly prepared or isn't mm-hmm. clean properly or whatever because it's grown fresh well there's no doubt it's fresh but it may have other things on it that, that <laughs> arise from the urban environment that you don't want our highly mechanized food production system that is, seems so artificial and is artificial actually makes sure we don't get sick which is kind of good as well so mm-hmm. all those aspects need to be thought through Okay, so we already, I think, talked about the opportunities that you see in cities for the future of cities, the brain, sorry, the brains and the heart of the city. And I'm conscious of the time. I would like to hear what you are doing with urban acoustics, because that's also very, very interesting. And I know it's one of your research areas. Would you be able to talk to us about that a little bit? Sure, I'd love to. I would actually love to say it is a research area, but it's it's an ambition at the moment <laughs> to do research in this area. We've been talking a lot about it. The term I've learned recently from talking to people who really are experts in this area, as I've mentioned at the start, I'm not an expert in anything. I just sort of do my fluid flows and then I talk to people who really know the topic. It's called urban soundscapes. This is the topic. So we don't talk about noise. Noise is a problem. We all know when noise is a problem and I can calculate I can measure spectra. That's something I do a lot of because I do waves. I can measure spectra. I can measure intensities. I can measure the logarithmic levels of things and calculate the decibels, therefore. That's noise. But consider something like an anechoic chamber. An anechoic chamber is a very special room, and you may have seen pictures of it. It's got these kind of pyramids coming in from the ceiling and the walls that are designed to absorb sound. And if you enter such a space and it's closed, you stand there, some people find it very uncomfortable and very unpleasant because there is no sound at all. So we are used to certain reverberation time as well. If we speak, we are used to hearing our own voice because it's bouncing off the surfaces and returning to us within a certain interval of time. So if there's no sound, it is very unpleasant. That's still looking at it from what we call a spectral perspective. What are, if we average over time and we look at how much energy is in certain frequencies, that's what's called a spectral perspective. But the urban soundscape concept, which is also something developed by people who do music and who understand music and play music, again, to be slightly technical, it's not looking at things in the spectral space or the frequency domain, but looking at things in the time domain. When one sound is followed by another, one note of music is followed by another in a sequence which is musical, even if some of those notes are quite loud, it may not be unpleasant. So we can have noise which is below the threshold, the legal thresholds for being a nuisance or whatever. People still find it very annoying sounds people still find very annoying. Look at the spectral content. Yeah, it's okay. Why are they complaining about it? Then you could have the same energy, sound energy rearranged. So it's an interesting piece of music or even something that energizes people. When we had this session, we talked about the sounds of a city that people makes them feel enlivened. It could be the ding of a tram bell, mm-hmm. which people associate. People who lived in Melbourne for a long time associate that with the city. Could be the chirp of a bird. Or it could be just something, you know, like the, the sound of someone playing music in the distance. Some people find the sound of a crowd not unpleasant but energizing. 
people chattering in the background, as long as you can move away from it if you need to. All of these things contribute to what's called a soundscape. And the mm-hmm. soundscapes can be designed mm-hmm. with knowledge of how buildings reflect sound, of how trees reflect sound, of how sound is absorbed by certain materials. But taking into account things which haven't really been thought through quite as carefully. And that is the sequence with which the energy comes. In other words, the time domain. So whether we hear something as music or not, whether we hear it as noise, that is really important. And that's a whole area of something I'd be keen to find out more about. Um, How do we mask these sounds? We're interested in things like water features fountains Mm -hmm. and how the fountains make sound, how the water features make sound is through the physics that we've we've studied for many years. Drops of water hitting the surface, they drag a little bubble underwater, the bubble rings like a little bell, gives off a sound. The collective sounds of all these bubbles create, for many people, a pleasant environment. How Mm -hmm. do we utilise that? How do we control it? How do we blend it? All these are questions to do with urban soundscapes. Do you have any idea where these ambitions will lead you? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it might be fun finding out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate it and you were very generous with it. As a closing comment, thought, would you like to tell anything to the audience? Well, since your podcast is about cities and the future of cities, I guess if anyone out there is interested, they should think about participating in our projects when we finally get them going about urban sound because we need people. It's all about people. So hopefully we will get some psychologists and musicians and so on working with us. And it needs to be done thoroughly, it needs to be done scientifically, but we do need subjects. So perhaps people will be interested to volunteer, but also think about being part of the, the urban brain. Just think about your um, your role in, in the city and that uh, you're not just a tiny one out of five million. Everything that you do, if it's done with others who are like-minded, can have an, a positive influence for the future. Amazing closing words. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. It was really good to hear from Richard how his knowledge of fluid dynamics is very important to the city, even if those two seem very far from each other at first. Not to mention his understanding of the urban brains with the human and technological brains was fascinating. You can find out more about Richard online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Richard's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?